How many of you have never heard John Riesinger speak? Anybody? Oh, there are some. No, you've never heard him. Anybody never heard John speak? Only a couple. John has had a, a long and a very good ministry. There are many people who are believers in the doctrines of grace as a result of his ministry. There are many who have a much better understanding of the doctrines of grace because of John's ministry. And that, I think, is a wonderful thing to be said. And for all of our argued differences a few years ago at the es famous eschatology conference, John is a wonderful friend, and he's had a wonderful ministry, and I'm very glad that I'm one who can, I think he still calls his friend, and I'm glad he's speaking for us. John, you're up. You never know what they're going to say. <laughs> now today I'm supposed to speak on ministerial burnout, even Calvinists. And if we had a subtitle for this, we would say the story of three great Calvinist preachers who were so depressed they asked God to kill them. Now, when I give that title, I'm assuming that Moses and Elijah and Jonah were Calvinistic preachers. <laughs> but one thing for sure is those three great men literally got so depressed that they asked God to kill them to take their life. It's always a shock to a new Christian to discover that the person who led him to Christ or his pastor or some eminent Christians that he knows when he discovers that they are still capable of sinning. It's quite a shock. It is always a bad thing to rejoice in other people's sins, and yet it is comforting when we realize that we are not the only one and that there is no one perfect except our Lord himself. And so when we see other people, we do take some comfort in that, hey, I am not the only one. Let me read the story of these three men. The first is in Numbers chapter 11 and verses 10 through 15. And this is the story of Moses. And verse 10 of Numbers chapter 11. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, and wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou shouldst lay the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them, that thou shouldst say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth a sucking child, unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all this people alone, because it's too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. He was so depressed, he literally asked God to kill him. And then 1 Kings chapter 19 
beginning to read at verse 1, 1 Kings 19, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by the morrow about this time. And when he saw that, he rose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And then in Jonah Chapter 4, you have the third instance. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now I think by way of introduction we can say a couple of things, general observations. First of all, the best of true believers, even though they are theologically straight, are not immune from depression and even an emotional breakdown. If we violate even either the physical laws of God or the moral laws or spiritual laws of God, we will suffer the consequences regardless of who we are. The second thing I think is this. Despondency appears to be one of the most effective weapons that the devil has. And it has been successful with some people when all else failed. And some of the greatest men and women of God who have stood in the bitterest temptation and overcame, succumbed at this point. There are four D's that I think we can put down that the devil has in mind for us every day that we wake up as Christians. First of all, to despoil you of your wealth in Jesus Christ. To despoil you of the joy of God's salvation to despoil you of all the comfort that comes from knowing who you are and what you are in Jesus Christ and all that he is to you. And the second D is to decoy you away from the scriptures in your walk of faith and to get you out of the word of God and to get your mind and your emotions so concerned with things and the circumstances out here that we forget the words of God and we forget to apply them to our conscience in the present situation. And then thirdly, I think he seeks to disable us in our warfare against sin, where we begin to fight with the weapons of the flesh instead of the weapons of our warfare, which are spiritual and which alone can win. And then the fourth and probably one of the most important is he seeks to drive us away from the throne of grace in the time of need. And the time that a Christian needs help and grace the most is the time when the devil seeks to persuade him 
that the one place he dare not go and should not go, especially because of his sin, and he's been forgiven of this sin more than once, how can he dare face God? He ought to be ashamed and so on, and to drive him away from the throne of grace, which is the only place that can help us in time of need. The third thing by way of gentle introduction is this. All three of these cases that we read about, Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, they were great prophets of God. They were not just everyday Christians. They were some of the greatest men of God who ever lived. And what should that teach us? It should teach us that it's not enough to hold correct theology. In my 45 years of being a pastor, I've noticed that oftentimes the people who knew the most theologically about the sovereignty of God were not the best people who knew how to suffer in affliction. And it seemed like their theology was way off when it came to real living. It's not enough to have great gifts and great ability and great recognition because these men had all of that and yet they still wanted to die. Depression can afflict you and me. It can afflict anybody. None of us are immune. And it must be really debilitating if it makes a person sincerely pray to God to have God take away his life. On Saturday morning, David Morris, who was to be here, and some of you know, he phoned me and said that a friend of his in our small town had just committed suicide and asked me to go visit. And I was there about two or three hours after it happened. And the man had hung himself, and he had absolutely no reason to. Uh, he, when you look at all of his finances and everything else, and he was just a very, very depressed person. It amazes me that people can be so depressed that they literally want to take their life. And yet Moses and Elijah and Jonah actually asked God to take their life. The fourth thing by way of introduction to this, all three of these cases were men who were spiritually successful and at the very moment of their worst depression when they wanted to die, they should have been in cloud nine. Because at that particular moment, they had far more to be grateful for than they did have to be depressed about. And you look at Moses, he had taken a million slaves and molded them into a disciplined nation. That's no small job. We can't do it with a congregation. <laughs> Somebody said the only way you can get four Baptists in one accord is put them in a Honda. <laughs> and Moses took a whole nation. Moses was the instrument of God in performing some of the most amazing displays of God's power that you read of in the scriptures. You remember the rod that turned into a snake and he picked it up and it turned back into a rod. And then watching Moses with that rod bring about those 10 plagues and then the Passover. And the scripture says not a single dog barked. And you imagine all the commotion and the death and all of that. And yet not a dog opened his mouth and barked. I preached on that once and a man in the congregation <clears throat> said, God also opens the mouth of dogs. And he had been praying about whether he ought to keep attending the church he was at. And he said he prayed, he and his wife prayed before they went to bed on Saturday night, one night, and they got up the next morning and the dog had eaten up all of the church giving envelopes. <laughs> and he says, those envelopes have been in that same tray for 10 years and that dog has never once eaten a piece of paper. He says, we figured maybe God wanted us out of there. <laughs> 
Well, he opens the mouth of dogs and he keeps the mouth of dogs shut. Then the Red Sea experience. I don't know if you've ever seen Charles Heston's in the Ten Commandments, but I tell you that that part where those that that sea goes back and they walk across on dry land. I don't know how they did that, but that was some some feat. There was a liberal preacher was trying to show that it wasn't really a miracle at that time of the year. The Red Sea, the, the, the Jordan River was very low and so on and so on and so on. And, there was, and he just went on and on and tried to explain it away that there wasn't any water there. And one little old lady went up to him after and she says, I think that's amazing. That's more miraculous. She says, what do you mean? And she, she says, well, I don't know how in the world God could drown a whole army in two inches of water. So <laughs> when you start messing with the miracles of the Bible, you usually wind up with something that's harder to explain than if you accept the first one. And then the sending of the quail and the water out of the rock and the miraculous care and protection. And then this is a man who talked face to face with God. And yet in spite of all these things and with the fresh knowledge of some of these things, he finally breaks under the persistent grumbling of the Israelites and is sick of it all and he wants to die. And then you have Elijah. Here's a man who was a great man of God, God's instrument to defeat Jezebel and 450 prophets of Baal, and he did it single-handedly. And yet now he is filled with fear of the very woman that he's just defeated, and he runs and he hides, and he is scared to death, and he wants to die. And then Jonah. Somebody said Jonah graduated from Whale Belly Seminary <laughs> and that their main course was salvation is of the Lord. That was their emphasis in theology. And uh, Jonah, he had fearlessly preached the message of God's repentance. He had witnessed a whole nation repenting and coming to faith. And instead of rejoicing, instead of praising God, he is filled with anger and frustration. So I think if you look at these things, I, I think you'll agree with me that the first lesson ought to be from the experience of these men that the devil can bring despondency when we have the most reason to be rejoicing. In fact, it is rather an anomaly that we are never more susceptible to temptation when we have just attained a great spiritual victory. It, it seems we leave ourselves open to temptations at that point. You never fall as far as when you fall from the top of the mountain. And when we have just experienced a great blessing from God, we should guard our minds and our hearts, especially at that time. And I think for pastors, I think this ought to teach us to be careful in the way we counsel people who are in the midst of depression or who battle with depression. I don't think we can just say they're not Christians or they're not spiritual Christians just because of depression and so on when we look at these people because it could be us because we could be depressed ourselves. Let's take a few moments and examine the causes of this depression in all three of these men and also God's cure for this depression. And we're going to see a pattern in all three cases. And in all three cases, we're going to see that there was a physical problem, a physiological situation. And secondly, there was also a personal selfish problem in each one of the three. And thirdly, there was also a spiritual failure in the case of all three of these men. Now, when we're talking about depression here today, 
We're not talking about depression that results from a biological defect because there's something wrong with a gland or something like that. We're not talking about something that can be cured by a doctor. And if you have that difficulty and you do suffer with depression, you should have a complete physical examination to make sure it isn't something that has to do with the glands or something that has to do with biology. One vital point before we get into the actual causes of this, that there's one thing that is so vital in the Christian life, especially in his attitudes and his moods. A believer must get his expectations for his life out of the Word of God. And I think at the root of most depressions is wrong expectations. And we're surprised at things that happened as if that just shouldn't happen, especially shouldn't happen to me. And if we get our expectations out of Scripture and we suffer persecution, we're not going to be surprised. It's not, it's not going to make it less painful in some ways, but at least we're not going to be thrown off of our lid spiritually. A believer must learn to get his expectations out of the Scriptures. And when I say out of the Scriptures, I don't mean just out of a text, but out of a text correctly interpreted and understood and believed. You can do weird and wonderful things with texts of Scripture if you take them out of their context. You remember those disciples on the road to Emmaus and they were really depressed. You could tell it. You could tell it the way they walked, the way they talked, the way they looked. And Jesus came along and said, why are you so depressed? Man, haven't you heard what happened these days? And then they started reciting. We thought, we thought, we had these expectations. And of course, those expectations were just blown out of the water. And you remember how our Lord dealt with them and said, ought not these things to have happened? Why are you amazed? All that's happening is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Then opened he their understanding to understand the scriptures. And said, if you would have gotten your expectations out of the scriptures and understood the prophets, you would not be depressed. You would not be perplexed at this moment. And then he says, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to die. Same thing as in Psalm 73, where a man takes his eyes off of God and tries to interpret reality in the light of his own logic and finds out he just gets more depressed and more depressed. And finally, he goes back to the sanctuary of God, and then he understood, and then he got comfort and peace. All right, then, the first cause of depression in these three cases, I think, was physical exhaustion. I think all three of these men were just absolutely dead, tired. Moses, certainly, when you look at his workload, he had the care and the administration and the responsibility for this whole nation. And not only all of that responsibility, but he was the only judge and he sat daily and judged all the problems that people were having and needed to be resolved. Now, you remember lady, they, later they took 70 men. What was Moses doing if it took 70 guys to take his place? But anyhow, you can imagine as he does this day in and day out and the physical strength and the virtue that goes out of him, but also all that he absorbs from this, the pettiness and goes home and says to his wife, you can't believe the stupid people and the stupid picky old things they do. And then he begins to wonder whether he gave the right advice because he knows that he's dealing with lives and children and other lives. And, 
And, and all of the time he's getting weaker and weaker physically and he can't sleep at night and he hates to get up in the morning and he hates to go to work and the man is just dead, dead, tired. And Jethro's advice, I think, was good advice. And sometimes the children of darkness are wiser than the children of light. But one thing for sure is there's a lot of times that other people know what's wrong with you when you don't know what's wrong with yourself or else you aren't willing to admit that it's wrong. And we need men like Jethro who can look at us objectively. And then you look at Elijah. And you can imagine the atmosphere that day on Mount Carmel, how charged that would be. And Elijah stands there alone against 450 prophets. He has no cheering section, nobody there to encourage him, just him alone with God. And then that challenge, he says, let's, let's put two, two bullocks and two altars, and you pray to your God and I'll pray to my God. And the God who answers with fire is the true and living God. And you remember the story. Those 450 prophets, they prayed, they hollered, they cut themselves with knives, they did everything possible. And old Elijah, he mocks them. Where's your God? Maybe he's sleeping. You better shout a little bit louder so you can wake him up. And literally one of those things he says can actually be translated, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. And he mocks them. And then it comes his turn. He says, pour three barrels of water. <laughs> pour the water down over the sacrifice. Do it again. Do it again three times. Soaked everything. Dug a ditch around it and the ditch was filled with water. And then he prayed. It took about two minutes. And then you remember Paul Harvey, he's always saying the rest of the story. <laughs> and not just did the fire come down room and consume the sacrifice, but then Elijah, he hears Jezebel's threat and he runs. Scripture says he was filled with the Holy Ghost. He ran in front of the chariot for 30 miles. Even filled with the Holy Ghost, you'd get tired running ahead of a horse for 30 miles. And then he goes into the wilderness. He has no food. He has nothing to drink. He's dead tired. He's emotionally spent. He's scared to death. And he says, Lord, take my life. I don't want to live. And then Jonah. Jonah probably had a sunstroke from exhaustion and from excessive heat. He had preached to a city as big as Philadelphia from one end to the other end. Dead, dead, tired. God sends a gourd so he gets a little bit of shade because he had no ice cubes, he had no air conditioner. He's hot, he's mad, he's tired. And then this gourd comes and he sighs with just a little bit of relief and the next day God took it. And then he really got mad. And the sun beat down on his head, the scripture says, and he was mad really mad and he's really not yet emotionally over that experience with the belly of the whale that's just happened just the other day and still has that to overcome and there he sits and he's emotionally overcome and he's finished and he wants to die now what do we learn from this well some depression is nothing less than a poor diet or lack of sleep. And sometimes depression can be cured with a couple of good square meals and a couple of good nights 
sleep. A good diet and a little bit of exercise may not only prevent a heart attack, it may save a lot of arguments and some disruptions in relationships, if that's really the cause of it. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and we are required of God to take care of this. We're not supermen. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, come ye apart and rest a while. I know some Christians who never, ever do anything at all to relax. They, they, they don't know what a vacation is, and they think that they don't need vacations. Now, there's no question that all three of these men were physically exhausted, but physical exhaustion isn't enough to explain depression when you're dealing with people like Moses and Elijah and Jonah. So I think there's a selfish reason in each of their cases. And when you read the story of Moses that we read in Numbers 11, that, that is nothing but a man who's filled with self-pity. And he's looking at himself as this whole responsibility was his. I can't do all this alone. Why did you give me this job? That's, that's a man who's filled with self-pity, who has forgotten all about the people that God called and gave him their care. And he's forgotten all about them and their needs. He's forgotten all about the glory of God, the purposes and plans of God, the past victories of God. And all that he sees is his own personal misery and he seeks to justify his feelings and he cries out in self-pity. Now you compare that prayer which we just read with the prayer in Exodus 32 when God is going to destroy Israel and Moses stands between God and, and Israel and pleads and says, if you take their life, take mine also. And he says, Lord, you are God. These are your people. Your glory's at stake. And what's the heathen going to say? He pleads God's covenant. Same man. But over here, his eye is on God. His, his eye is on the promise of God. And now he's lost all of that. And now he's looking at himself. It's amazing how different really we feel about the job God gives us to do when we've taken our eyes off of God and looking only at ourself. Isn't it amazing how differently we can feel? And then Elijah. Elijah says, I've been jealous for the Lord. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down their altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life also. I'm the only one left. <laughs> I, even I, the great one, the mighty one. I meet preachers sometimes and they say, we have the only true Calvinistic church in a radius of 100 miles. Or whatever else it is. We're the only ones. <laughs> I got news for you. God has people all over the place. In places that would absolutely amaze you and surprise you. Is that right?
than Jonah. God's goodness to Nineveh had shattered his credentials as a prophet. God's grace had contradicted and overridden Jonah's prejudices. He wanted the people destroyed. He sat on the hill looking for it, waiting for it, ready to clap his hands. If ever there was a hyper-Calvinist, it was Jonah. <laughs> Ooh, was he a hyper-Calvinist. Well, what are the lessons we learned from this? Well, in all three cases, Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and their desire to die grew out of selfish disappointments and selfish self-interest. They lost all sight of the glory of God, concerned only with their own insufficiency and hurts. Now, you can trace your despondency to the roots of self, and, and you'll always find self is involved in some way. You can blame other people, and you may be partly right. You may try to blame God, and you'll be 100% wrong. But if you blame your own disappointed, blasted illusions and wrong expectations, you'll always be sure that that's part of it. And then the third thing, physical, selfish, but also spiritual. And remember, again, these are great men. And you can't just explain them on those first two things. At least I don't think so. In each case, I think there's a spiritual disappointment. In Numbers chapter 11, this is an outburst of a man who's totally out of touch with God. He is sick and tired of the people's murmuring against God, even as he himself is murmuring against God. He is doing the very thing at that very moment that he is so upset that the people are doing. And what's the problem with Moses? Moses feels far too small for the task that God had called him to do. He says, I can't take care of all these people. Well, he never was expected to. You remember when Paul cries out, who is sufficient for these things? One of the greatest trials that any true man of God or woman of God faces is when they feel insignificant for the thing that's laid upon them and they don't want to see the program fail. They don't want to see God dishonored. They would rather die than see the glory of their God solid. But that sometimes can be a backhanded form of self-righteousness when we take on ourselves a burden that God never meant us to have. And that's what, you read Numbers 11, Moses is praying as a man who has taken upon himself the success or failure of the whole situation. And that wasn't true. Our job is to do and be what God calls us to do and be. He's not made us responsible for the results. We cannot take the responsibility for other people's sins. Brother, we have enough of our own without taking somebody. And this is what Moses is doing. Christian workers face this. Christian parents face this. At that very moment when Moses is so depressed, it couldn't enter his mind all that God had in store for him and all that God was going to do through him in spite of his insufficiency, in spite of his failures. And how did God minister to Moses? 
in his despair? Well, he gave him a new view of his sovereignty. <laughs> That's always a good medicine, a new view of his sovereignty. And then he assured him, Moses, I called you to this job. And then he assured him that it was God's work and Moses was just an instrument. And he assured him that his grace was more than sufficient to accomplish every single thing that God had called him to do. He led him to confess his own faults, yes, but he's given and accepted some other help. He's given some much needed rest. He's given a new determination and a new vision. He's shown some of the amazing grace and pity of God and patience of God, but also he's nudged by the Spirit to start off again with the assurance that God would go with him and would not leave him or forsake him. And there's new hope in Moses' heart in spite of his insufficiencies, in spite of his depression. And Elijah, no real revival had come. He had defeated the prophet's hand down. And God had spoken from heaven and the people had shouted, glory, glory. They'd seen the miracle. Yes, and nothing happened. And it wasn't long. They were right back to where they were before. And Elijah says, where did I fail? Where's the revival? What did I do wrong? What, what, what didn't I do right? Didn't I follow through right? Or so and so. Elijah had shown real courage and he meant it. And it seemed that God had blessed it, but it was only temporary. He must have failed someplace. See, he's taken the responsibility that isn't his, exactly like a Moses did. Parents sometimes fall into this. I've known godly parents who didn't always have all of their children come to walk with God, and they felt that they had totally failed. I've known other Christian families that I would have bet you a thousand dollars that all of their kids would have turned out bad and they all wound up in the mission field. I don't understand God's sovereignty, but I know this. I know that a child is not a clean slate that you can write anything on it that you want to. I know that he's not an untrained tree that you can bend any way you want to. If you have failed as a parent, then you ask God to forgive you for your failure. But you cannot take the responsibility on your shoulders that if a child isn't a Christian, it is all your fault. And I'm sorry, but some of our reformed people have the idea that if you catechize and you do this and you do this, you can predict 100% the answer. There's something about election. There's something about a Jacob and an Esau who has a godly parent named Isaac who is the grandsons of the man to whom the promise was given, Abraham himself. My friend, don't deny failure as a pastor. Don't deny failure as a Christian parent, but don't go Freudian. Don't follow Freud psychology. This is the same word to struggling preachers. Maybe I talked to some preachers here who you have struggling works and you have seen little or no outward results. You may even, because you preach the truth, sit in the situation where you're ready to get fired and the church is ready to blow up. Well, if you've made some mistakes, confess it, but my dear friend, keep on being faithful to the truth and hang in there. God has not called you to be successful. He's called you to preach the truth. 
He's called you to be faithful to his word and take heart and take courage. Let God be God. And let God give to those who only works one hour a full day's pay. And you just shut your mouth if you worked all day. Is that right? <laughs> you remember that passage? Can I not do it? Yeah, but wait a minute. Ah, oh, you follow that route, I'll guarantee you, you'll wind up in depression. Now, how did God answer these prayers of these three men? Well, he very graciously said, no. Aren't you glad God says no sometimes? <laughs> Things you thought you'd die if you didn't get, and God graciously said no. I heard about a preacher who was old and tired. I mean, really tired. And he was sitting in the pulpit, and he just was laid back, and he was sure he wouldn't even be able to get up. He says, Lord, he said, I'm so tired. Why don't you just take me home? And he felt a pain in his chest. He thought he was dying. He said, Lord, don't listen to a fool like me. <laughs> I, I'm 74 years old. And you know one of the things I've learned? I've learned that you can say some of the stupidest stuff in the world to both men and God when you're depressed. Is that right? When you're not thinking straight. Thank God he knows your heart. Thank God he knows your heart of hearts. Now Moses, we've, we've already covered Moses. God gave him other leaders. He renewed his pledge and his calling. He also assured him he'd go with him. But what about Elijah? Well, God took Elijah to a solitary place. He gave him lots of sleep. He gave him some bread that was baked in God's own oven. And then he gave him a raven for a waiter. Boy, that's a story, isn't it? A waiter bringing that food there. And then he assured him, come on, I got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. What is this, I, I'm the only one left, and if I die, truth dies with me. No, 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 no. And then he gave him one of that 7,000 to be personally with him, to tutor him. Boy, there's nothing like having a prayer partner. Men and women, both of you, try to find a person that you know and love and trust that you can meet with one-on-one, -on -one weekly or semi-weekly, where you can open your heart and you can plead to God for each other. And that's what God gave to Elijah. And then Jonah, he prepared the gourd and then he took it just to show Jonah his kindness and also the hardness of Jonah's heart. And God says, Jonah, you're more concerned with that gourd than you are those people over there. Now, let me give you just a quick word of application. And, and I, I would ask a very personal and a very pertinent question to everybody who's here this afternoon. And it's the question that God put to Elijah. He said, Elijah, what doest thou here? <laughs> Elijah, why are you sulking in this cave? It's the question that God said to Adam, Adam, where art thou? And where are you this morning, this afternoon? Are you really rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord? Are you really a happy person who knows the joy of God's presence and you feel the wonder of his gracious love 
And if you don't, let me say, why not? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you teenagers, if you're here and you've never embraced our Lord Jesus Christ, why not? Why are you outside of grace? Why are you outside of the kingdom of God? It surely can't be because God does not delight to save even the worst of sinners. It can't be because God has not freely invited you to come and trust his son. Why are you where you are? Why are you where you are? And if you're a child of God who, who once knew the love of Christ in a very real, powerful way, but you've really lost the joy of the Lord's presence, why don't you come back? Why not be restored? Because God delights to restore the wanderer. Is that right? He welcomes the prodigal home. Maybe you're a preacher. And you've been playing church for the last 10 years. You retired inside. Even though you haven't missed a Sunday. But you look at the books on your shelf and, and there's no hunger. There's no, there's no reality. There's no joy. There's no zeal. Your ministers become a job. And you may even be successful in your job. But it's no longer a ministry unto God. Well, if you're in any of these situations, I, I, I got a message for you. I really do. And I got an invitation to you, especially to you. It, it's the one that our Lord gave those hungry, cold, disillusioned, depressed fishermen. <laughs> in John 21, I love that passage. Where our Lord goes out and he fixes that fire and with his resurrected fingers, he reaches into the sea and takes those fish and puts them on the fire and has it all ready for those backsliders. And he said, come and dine. That's the message. That's the message. Come and dine. Is it cold where you live? Is it cold? where you live? If it is, come on up by the fire. <laughs> come on, man. Let me tell you, there's food for the hungry. It's already cooked. There's fire. There's water to quench your thirst. And there's the warmth that will warm your bones and thrill your soul. Come and dine. Today's the day to be saved. Today's the day to be restored. Today's the day to start anew and afresh. Today the day for God to revive our hearts. Sometimes people say to me, John, when you preach, you, you, you get me all enthused. <laughs> but it only lasts for a month. And I tell him, well, if it only lasts for a month, that's better than 12 months of nothing. I would be restored if it was only for a month. But it doesn't have to be a month. Is that right? It doesn't have to be a month. 
If it's cold where you live, there's a fire that's already made. And there's one who invites you to it. I think much of our depression comes from refusing to look at things through God's eyes. Through the eyes of sovereign providence, we lose sight of eternity. We get so caught up in our selfishness and our needs and our false expectations and personal happiness that we just totally ignore the clear truth of Scripture. If, if, if I could get Christians and myself to take a vow, it would be I will never ever get my view of reality from the world, from my feelings, from the majority, but from the Word of God. Because what is real is eternal. And that's the only thing that's real. And unless we're in the Word and bowing before the Lord, we'll never ever see reality. Peter's expectations were dashed, so were the other disciples. Man, they thought there's going to be generals there. They were going to be part of the big overthrow. And now the Lord's crucified. And Peter said, I go fishing. And they said, we go with you. <laughs> and off they went. And they fished, and they fished all night. And the next morning they were totally empty-handed, no fish. And they were hungry, they were cold. And they were tired and they were irritable. And Jesus said to them, children, have you any fish? That's a good question, isn't it? Have you been fishing? You said, did you get any fish? Isn't that a legitimate question? Uh, <laughs> no, no fish. Maybe, maybe you went fishing 10 years ago or 20 years ago or five years ago, did you? You went fishing. You just left conscience. You just left truth. And you went back to fishing. Let me ask you what Jesus said. Did you get any fish? Did you get what you went after? Did you? Have you found that, that stuff they talk about, meaning, reality, purpose? Did you get that when you deserted the Lord? In your heart and your conscience, did you get any fish? Or did the room get colder and colder and colder? And now you can show me your boat, and it's the best boat in the bay, but you don't have any fish. And you have it made, but you don't have any fish. And I don't know about you, but I want to fish and catch fish. I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures where when, when, you, when you stand back about 25 feet, they, they clears a bell. There's a picture there. There's, there's one up at Canadegua that's a picture of a beautiful woman, just a beautiful woman. And back of her is a dance hall, and these people in their royal attire are dancing. And then as you get closer to it, just all of a sudden, boom, it changes when you get about six feet away. And that beautiful woman tugged turns into the ugliest hag you ever saw in your life. <laughs> and all those people that were dancing, they're skeletons. <laughs> you ever see pictures like that? This just changed right in front of you when you get close to them. And, and, and that's, 
the way it is with you and I. When we get very far away from the scriptures, very far, very far away from the Lord himself, then we don't see straight. And all of a sudden we come back and all of the things that look so wonderful, now they have the mark of death on them. My dear people, we need to learn to live in the light of eternity. That's the cure for despondency. Francis Schaeffer used to take his wife and they would go out into the junkyard once every year. And, and they, would, they would stand in the middle of the junkyard. <laughs> and they would look over here at his sofa and, and they would try to imagine the couple who bought that. Maybe it was their first piece of furniture. And, and they saved for such a long time to buy this and they bought this sofa and they brought it home, they brought all their friends in to brag about it. And well, they might, they were proud as could be and it was the best thing they ever owned and now it's in the junkyard. And then they would look at something else and go through the same thing. And then they would hold hands in the middle of the junkyard and say, Lord, help us to remember that every single thing we own is going to wind up in a junkyard. And so it is. And so it is. Is that right? I had the privilege of visiting the mission fields in Africa. And, and I saw a man there who was a medical doctor that I hadn't seen for 20 years. His name was Barnett. And the last time I had seen him, he had spoken at a missionary conference. And while I was speaking, he had a Life magazine tucked underneath his arm. Like this. And he got to a point in the sermon where he opened up this and he told about when he went to medical school, University of Pennsylvania, graduated second in his class in surgery. And he went to the mission field. And the guy who graduated first, he had witnessed to him many times. And he just ridiculed him all the time. He said on his first tour, he came back from Africa and he was in New York on Fifth Avenue. And he said a car stopped, a limousine stopped, a chauffeur got out opened up the door and out stepped this guy who had graduated first. And the guy says, Barnett, good to see you. And he said, I had a suit on that the mission gave me. And he said, I, I felt like crawling in the sewer. <laughs> this guy has a, he looks like he walked out of Esquire, you see. And, and he said, I really felt inferior. And this guy says, what have you been doing? And I said, ah, ooh, ah what have you been doing? <laughs> and he told him of all of his, and there's nothing wrong with attainments. There's nothing wrong with being successful as a surgeon. And then he was finished with all of his accomplishments. He says, now what have you been doing? And Barnett said, this magazine that I have here, I had that day and it fell on the pavement. And there in the cover was a, was a picture of a woman's hand holding $3 million worth of jewels. And Barnett said, I've been gathering jewels for the king. <laughs> and he said, I told him again the gospel. And he said, he looked at me and he says, Art, you didn't go through with that, did you? You didn't go to Africa and waste your life when you could have made millions and you could have had a reputation all over the world. Do you mean to tell me you wasted your life? 
Barnett said, I looked at him and said, it isn't mine to waste because it doesn't belong to me. It was bought by Jesus Christ. And if he wants to use it over in Africa, that's his business. And if he wants to use it in a little church in New York that has six people, that's his business. And if he wants to use it and use it to bring in a thousand people, that's his business. And my business is to be faithful in the place he put me and doing what he gave me to do and just rejoice in that as a privilege. Is that right? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow our heads, close our eyes, and that's easy. But we seek from you grace to bend our minds and our hearts and our wills to your truth and to reality. And that we can't do apart from your sovereign grace and power. We pray that in this time together that you would overcome us with your grace. That we would feel a sense of the grace and power of God that we've never known before. We're here because we love you. If we know our hearts, we love you. And we love you only because you first loved us. And we're here that you might minister to us, not just our minds. We don't want just answer to theological questions. We want that because we want to understand that we want to learn to know you and serve you better. We want to learn to glorify you, to communicate your truth to the hearts and lives of your sheep. To be the instrument of your hand to bring the gospel to those who are as lost as can be. We want to be your men and your women. We want to be doing what you called us to do with the assurance that you've never called us to do anything that you wouldn't equip us and give us yourself to be in that with us. So God speak to us each this week. We begin our conference with the prayer of Samuel of old when he said, Speak, Lord, and thy servant heareth. O oh God, speak to my heart and to every heart here, for Christ's sake. Amen.